0: Welcome to the Vanderbilt University Medical Center's Faculty Forum with your host, Matt Warhoover.
1: We're going to jump right into the introductions for our, what what is this? Is this the fourth Faculty Forum? I can't remember.
2: Uh, I think it's the I fourth. I think it's
1: the fourth one, yeah. yeah. And it's really becoming a popular series, but let me introduce Matt Warhoover for you first. And then Matt, as I said, will introduce our guest faculty, Katie. Matt graduated from Vanderbilt University with a master's in healthcare management. He also earned a master's in perfusion science from Milwaukee School of Engineering. He is currently the associate chief of perfusion at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, and he is the lead for the perfusion-based ECMO service line, performing nearly one hundred ECMO patients and twenty thousand hours of ECMO. Uh, treatment annually. His career started as a cardiothoracic, uh, cardiac and thoracic surgery anesthesia tech in 1997, and continued his education and started his perfusion career at Midwest Heart Institute in Milwaukee. Um, 2005, Matt to perf- uh, perfusionist supervi- uh, supervisor. I'm sorry for McAllen Perfusion Associates, which is not terribly far from where we are, and uh, the Valley. And in 2016, became Associate Chief of Profusion at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. He's certified with the ABCP, licensed by the Tennessee State Department of Health. He's published numerous articles in the Journal of Extracorporeal Technology uh, on a variety of subjects. Uh, he has a real passion for ECMO, on inflammatory response, VADs, thrombocytopenia, uh, uh, alternatives to, obviously, anticoagulation, such as argatriban, and uh, he is a member of the uh, ABCP uh, and the Ten- uh, Tennessee Perfusion uh, Association. You're actually the association president, uh, president, the Tennessee Perfusion Association president, from 2010 till now. So that's an 11-year uh, reign in administration uh, of that great society. So, you know, uh, my compliments to you for being able to accomplish all of that. I'm sure that COVID has made everything that you're doing there in the state even more complicated than it was before, so I'd be interested to hear your perspective on that. So there's Matt Warhoover, and I'm going to let Matt take it from here for our fourth uh, 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 Vanderbilt faculty forum. Matt, floor is yours, sir. Thanks, Joe. Uh, uh, a lot
0: of accolades there, and uh, uh, some of them were a little stretched, Joe. I just uh, I don't know where you land though, but uh, yeah. I don't. I don't think that's all on my bio, but I'm just. I'm just giving it's, you a hard it's, time. It's.
1: It's what you. Are you serious? It's what you sent me.
0: Oh, I'm just kidding you. I'm just kidding you. <laughs> my, uh, I. I'm. I'm. I can't. Uh, I can't talk and uh, talk people up as well as you can, Joe. So I appreciate it. <laughs> You're um, welcome. I do appreciate this, and this is uh, our fourth uh, meeting, and uh, every single one of them, I, I, I think, have been worthwhile. And uh, today. We were lucky enough to have uh, one of our perfusion colleagues across the uh, Skybridge uh, from Children's Hospital, uh, Vanderbilt Children's Hospital and Vanderbilt University Medical Center uh, Adult Hospital, all those separate perfusion departments, one big campus and uh, Katie was gracious enough to come across the Skybridge this morning and meet me. This is Katie Fiella and uh, we were lucky enough to uh, have her come on as a Vanderbilt employee colleague uh, about two, two and a half years ago, two years. and uh, she uh, came from Boston Children's, um, oh, wow. Wow. and she went to school, MUSC, yeah, we were lucky enough to snag her, for, you know, one of the best uh, children's hospitals in the country, and now Vanderbilt, we're trying to uh, make that, uh, you know, compete, so very happy to have Katie, and uh, her, her chief Nikki, Nicole Machaud, uh one of my uh, longtime mentors, she taught me. And uh, she's the she chief. Me of the, too. the Oh, she talked to you yeah. at U.S.D. too. Yeah, that's right. So um, yeah, uh, although I don't know Katie well, I know uh, you know her. Her name at the hospital precedes everybody um, uh, over there, and so I'm
1: very happy to have her here this morning to give us this great talk. Well, you know what? And I'm so glad you just said that. And Katie, welcome, by the way. Welcome, Katie. And, of course, joined in the in the studio with me, which I didn't even mention, of course, is Tammy Sparacino. <laughs> but everybody knows Tammy, so it was a little easier. Uh, but Tammy Sparacino, of course, she's the Tammy Sparacino Journal Club Casino uh, Director. <laughs> and uh, we have a lot of fun. But I wanted to mention to you, too, that, of course, coming from Boston Children's, that's very, that's really very impressive. But, Matt... Since you don't know Katie very well, it's, I think this is kind of what I've said a lot of times is that having this kind of a platform now brings you closer to Katie, her closer to you, and that collegial relationship helps to grow. And I think that's a lot of the point of this is we can't go to meetings right now and have that kind of contact in the large groups, but yet your, your circle of, of colleagues, both of you, has grown just from this program, and so I, I think that's one of the real benefits that uh, that that's not necessarily under uh, recognized up front. Agreed. Yep. Yeah. So, Katie, I think you're on.
3: All right, I'm ready. All right. All right. So today I'm going to talk about alpha and pH stat blood gas management. I'm going to basically go over a little bit of the physiology for a reminder for all of us. And then I'm going to talk about a couple of historic articles that kind of helped shape what we do for alpha and pH stat, blood gas management. And you can go to the next slide. All right, so the first kind of article, which this is really a great background review for everyone for the physiology is this article, Physiology, Oxygen Transport, and Carbon Dioxide Dissociation Curve um, from the STATPIRLS, which is an online resource. Next slide. So first, just some basic terms to remind everybody. Um, oxygen saturation, or SAO2, that's the percentage of hemoglobin bound to oxygen. The partial pressure of oxygen, or PaO2, is the amount of oxygen dissolved in the blood. And then the relationship between these two numbers is described by the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. So we'll move on to the next slide. So here's just, a, again, a little bit of review. Hemoglobin is made up of four subunits, two alpha and two beta. Each unit contains a heme group and a globin chain. And there is an iron. Um, at the center of each that can bind one oxygen. So just bear with me as we kind of go through the physiology real quick. So there are basically two different states for this hemoglobin unit. There's the tense state and the relaxed state. And in the tense state, the binding of oxygen occurs with a low affinity, and that's really due to the weak ionic and hydrogen bonds, which restrict the movement of those four subunits. Whereas in the relaxed state, binding of oxygen, a binding of one oxygen has disrupted those bonds, and it's going to be easier to bind the additional uh, three oxygen to that unit. So basically, the effect of one oxygen binding has a positive cooperativity effect, which means that one, um, one oxygen binding allows the other oxygen to bind a lot more easily in that relaxed state. And that's what allows for that sigmoidal shape on the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. Next slide. So here's you know, the curve. I know we're all familiar with this. Remember, if you shift the curve to the left, you're gonna have a higher affinity for oxygen. It's gonna be harder to release oxygen. That's that um, relaxed state. And then if you shift the curve to the right, we're gonna be in the tense state. We're going to have a lower affinity for oxygen. We'll come back and talk about that as it regards to bypass um, in a couple minutes. So real quick, we'll talk a little bit about some things that have an effect on that curve. So, of course, pH has an effect through the Bohr effect, um, where a decrease in pH is going to shift that curve to the right. And that's really because of the effect um, on those, those weak ionic bonds that keep the key molecules either in the tense or the, re- the relaxed state. So remember, a greater concentration of hydrogen ions is a lower pH and shifts the curve. Next slide. So a few other things that can shift that curve. Um, we mentioned carbon dioxide, also 2,3-diphosphoglycerate or 2,3-DPG which is normally formed in the, in the red blood cells during glycolysis. So an increase in this 2,3-DPG uh, is going to cause a rightward shift in the curve, um, and it's inversely proportionate to the level of hydrogen ions. Remember that stored banked blood is going to have a significantly decreased level of this 2,3-DPG, so it's something to think about when you're giving blood on bypass. Temperature and increased temperature is gonna cause a rightward shift in the curve. Carbon monoxide, left shift, and fetal hemoglobin, importantly, is also gonna cause a left shift. So if you remember back in perfusion school, your fetal circulation, that's an important way that oxygen is delivered from a mom to a fetus during um, fetal development. All right, next slide. So again, this is just showing us uh, where we are on bypass, some of the things that are going to affect this shift. The left shift is an increased affinity for oxygen. Right shift is decreased affinity for oxygen. So if you think about where you want to be on this curve when you're on bypass, remember, on bypass, we have an abundance of oxygen in our oxygenator. We don't need to have an extra tight affinity for that oxygen. What we need is to be able to release oxygen at the tissues. So we really probably need to think about keeping that curve either where it is or shifting it to the right on bypass so that we can release oxygen at the tissues. Next slide. So why is all this physiology important? Understanding this curve is really the basics to understanding the effect of pH on oxygen delivery, So that we can decide whether our patient's going to benefit more from alpha stat or ph stat blood gas management next slide all right so some more definitions coming up alpha stat is a blood gas management strategy to maintain ph of 7.4 pco2 of 40 measured at 37 degrees ph stat same thing blood gas management strategy to maintain ph of 7.4 PCO2 of 40 when we are temperature correcting to the patient's temperature. So an important thing to think about when you're thinking about pH stat is what temperature are we correcting to. So we all know that we have our heater cooler temperature. We have our arterial blood gas temperature. If you're using a CDI, you'll have a CDI temperature. So those temperatures may be off by a few degrees. That might make could make a significant difference in our calculation. So remember to be thoughtful about what temperature you're using when you're calculating pH stat. I like to use the patient's venous blood temperature because that's really the biggest reflection of the patient's temperature versus what our oxygenator temperature was. So temperature, what does the temperature effect on our blood gas? So remember, as we decrease temperature, we are increasing the solubility of gases. So therefore, as we decrease our temperature below 37 degrees, our PaO2 is going to decrease by about 5 millimeters of mercury for every degree. Our PaCO2 is going to decrease by about 2 millimeters of mercury for every degree below uh, 37. And our change in pH will be roughly 0.015 pH unit per degree celsius. So really knowing these numbers you could calculate yourself your temperature corrected blood gas. But who wants that? Hopefully you have a CDI if you're doing pH stat. All right. So what does this mean for our blood gas? This means that this this diagram is a little bit confusing to look at, but basically if you think of your 28 degree patient, if you are using your if you're using pH stat and you're at 28 degrees at 7.4 what would your 37 degree blood gas look like this is a question I love to ask our students all the time if we flipped you know on the CDI to that temperature corrected button what would it say so if we are at pCO2 of 40 at 28 degrees your pCO2 at 37 would likely be about 56 so it's going to be higher Same thing if you were running Alphastat and your PCO2 was 40. If you went to that 28 degree temperature corrected number, it would be about 26. So if you think about it this way, you can think, does that mean that we are going to need to increase or decrease the amount of CO2 that we are blowing off or giving to the patient? And if you think of it this way, you can realize that if we are cooling the patient and we want to do pH stat, we're going to have to add CO2 some way. Either add it or blow off less of it, but we'll need more of our CO2. Next slide. So what are some ways that we can accomplish pH stat? So there's actually a variety of ways. I've used most of these ways myself, uh, either as a student or somewhere where I've worked. So you can use a stopcock on your gas line where you can blend in Um, Use a low flow CO2 meter and blend in that way. You can use a pump sucker to pump in CO2. You could use carbogen. You could have different mixes of oxygen and CO2 as your gas source. Of course, then you're using 100% FiO2, but it's a choice. Probably the best and easiest choice is to have an electronic gas blender that will blend in your CO2 for you. Also think, do you always have to add CO2? Now, I know a lot of students sometimes get hung up on this pH that means you're adding in CO2, and that's really not correct. You don't necessarily have to add in CO2. You could blow off less CO2. Now, if you're doing a pediatric case and you've got a really low sweep to begin with, then, yes, you probably have to add in CO2 because you don't want to decrease your sweep below whatever that um, minimum sweep is for your oxygenator but technically if you're doing a larger patient you could turn your sweep down and be doing ph stat without actively adding in co2 all right so moving on to our first historical article from boston children's hospital not biased at all here um the optimal ph strategy for cardiopulmonary bypass in neonates infants and children this is a Jonas article from the, the 90s at the Boston Children's Hospital. And what this article did was um, basically study the effect of alpha and pH stat. So why did they choose to start studying this? Really it's because in the 80s um, they had no incidences of chorioathetosis after bypass. In 1985, they introduced the alpha-stat blood gas strategy, and then following that, they began to see more incidences of chorioathetosis. So that's what kind of prompted them to look at this issue. This quote from the article, they speculated that more alkaline blood gas strategy was causing a steal from the cerebral to the pulmonary circulation in patients whose pulmonary blood flow is derived from the arterial system and that the decreased cerebral blood flow during cooling may have resulted in inadequate brain cooling before circulatory arrest. So again, let's think about a little bit to remind maybe some of the adult perfusionists the differences between adult and pediatric perfusion and some of the different concerns that we have in pediatric versus adult perfusion. So for adults, we might be more concerned about emboli and fixed cerebral vascular stenosis whereas in infants, we're more concerned about global hypoperfusion as a method of cerebral injury. So just think about kind of the different methods of injury that you're most worried about is going to help you guide what your individual patient could benefit from. Also, infant cardiac surgery historically utilizes a lot of deep hypothermia. So there's going to be a greater difference between alpha stat and pH stat management at those lower temperatures. If you're cooling your patient to 34 degrees, there may not be a huge difference between whether you choose alpha or pH stat management. Circulating your patients to 18 degrees, there's gonna be a big difference. So how did the group at Boston examine this problem once they, they felt like there was a problem? They did several studies. First, they started with just a retrospective clinical study looking at their circulatory arrest and pH strategy. Then they did some lab studies and then they did a prospective clinical trial. Their retroge- their sorry, retrospective clinical study, they looked at patients who had undergone the sending procedure and who um, uh, went circulatory arrest for an average of 43 minutes. And they looked at cognitive developmental scoring. And what they found is that there was a strong positive correlation between the PCO2 before circulatory arrest and the developmental score. So patients that had a higher arterial PCO2 had a better developmental score. After this, they moved to some laboratory studies. They used some piglet models um, where they used either alphastat or pH strap uh, management uh, before circulatory arrest. The data that they looked at included cerebral MRI, cerebral blood flow, cerebral metabolism, and cerebral edema. So they were really focusing on, obviously, the effects on the brain. They found that pH stat animals had better cerebral blood flow during cooling and also better recovery of their cerebral ATP and intracellular pH in that pH stat group. So therefore, they were able to conclude that there was improved cerebral protection using the PH-STAT management. And they hypothesized that this was likely due to increased oxygen availability during the cooling phase. So remember, think back to that curve. If we shift the curve to the right with PH-STAT, we're going to have a, a lower affinity for oxygen, which is going to allow oxygen to be released at the tissues. Um, And remember, when we're cooling, we're shifting the curve to the left. So if we don't compensate for that left shift, then we're going to have decreased release of oxygen at the tissue when we're cooling. And then there's also the effect of cerebral dilation that's caused by CO2. So those two things together improve cerebral protection when using pH stat. Um, They also noted that reperfusion after ischemia with a more acidotic reperfusate is associated with reduced ischemic injury. So they didn't stop there. They did some further studies and they want to see whether the effect of pH stat was really important for cooling or rewarming or both. So basically they broke the piglets into these four different groups where they either you know, cooled using one and rewarmed the other or both alpha or both pH stat. And basically what they found after this study was that for both the cooling and the rewarming phase, pH stat had benefits that could contribute to an improved cerebral outcome. So finally, they moved on to a prospective clinical study. They took 182 patients less than nine months old, this was between 1992 and 1996, and those patients were randomized to pH stat or alpha stat management. The data they looked at included cardiac output, clinical seizures, and neurologic exam. And their conclusion after this prospective clinical trial was that randomization to the pH strategy was associated with generally improved outcomes compared to the alpha stat strategy. Some of those outcomes included shorter recovery of EEG activity, fewer seizures, lower incidence of post-op hypocalcemia and coagulopathy, higher cardiac index and lower inotrope requirements and shorter shorter uh, mechanical ventilation and ICU stay so really some significant improvements so the conclusions of this Boston trial basically all of their studies supported the routine use of PH strategy in patients whom cerebral embolization is not likely to be an important cause of cerebral injury during bypass And they suggested that pH stat is preferable to alpha stat to improve oxygen delivery into the cerebral neuronal mitochondria. And finally, that the use of pH stat strategy is most likely to be critically important when deep hypothermic temperatures are employed with low crit and low flow rate in patients with multiple aorta pulmonary collateral vessels. So just to focus on that part of it just for a second, um, if you think about pulmonary collaterals, MAPCAs. If you have a patient that has MAPCAs, you know that it's critically important on bypass to control the flow of those MAPCAs somehow. Either the surgeon's going to be able to snare those MAPCAs because otherwise you're not going to be delivering adequate flow to your patient. You're going to be having this big recirculation effect. pH stat is going to help, the increased CO2 is going to help selectively dilate those pulmonary collaterals and at the same time, I'm sorry, not dilate, restrict the collateral flow and dilate your cerebral blood flow. So it's going to help you make sure that when you have those collaterals that you're maintaining enough flow to the brain. So that's a really important kind of thing to point out um, about pH stat. All right, and one more historic article. And real quick, I know that the PHDAT article that I just talked about from Boston is an old article. So something that I always like to talk to my students about is, you know, why do we care about this old article from the 90s? Isn't there more recent data? You know, it's 2021. And really, there's not going to be a lot of more recent data because these studies were so extensive they showed such great benefit of pH stat that that's really been the accepted view since then for pediatric cardiac surgery. So yes, the historical articles are important to think about where these practices came from and question whether they're still relevant. But when you look at the data, it's pretty conclusive that pH stat for cold circulatory arrest pediatric cases is very important. So the final article that I'm gonna talk about today is the effect of two different bypass techniques on the serum troponin T levels in newborns and children? Does pH stat provide better protection? So this is kind of going in a little bit of a different direction, um, talking about some different benefits of pH stat in addition to the cerebral protection. So, real quick, the problem is that congenitally abnormal pediatric hearts are more sensitive to cardioplegic arrest. And a lot of the post-op morbidity and mortality is due to inadequate myocardial protection. So in this study, they looked at 101 neonates and children undergoing elective open-heart surgery. This was between 1998 and 1999. And this was a study out of the UK. I think I forgot to say that. Um, And they were selected for either alpha stat or pH stat management. If they were circulatory arrest patients, they went to 18 degrees, other patients went to 28 to 32 degrees, and they looked at cardiac troponin T as a measurement of marker of myocardial injury during bypass. So they drew those levels at skin incision, 30 minutes after termination of bypass, and then postoperatively at 4 and 24 hours. So if you look at these graphs, you can see, it might be a little bit hard to see, but they compared the alpha-stat neonates and the alpha-stat children with the pH-stat neonates and children. And what they did find was that the alpha-stat neonates, you can see they had the highest peak troponin T levels. So the highest, that marker of injury was the highest in that group. And then the second graph just shows um, lengths of circulatory arrest and cross clamp, and not surprisingly, the longer circulatory arrest group had the highest incidence of um, cardiac injury. So their results, they found that the pH stat strategy resulted in significantly lower peak cardiac troponin T at 30 minutes after bypass. The levels at 4 and 24 hours post-off were not significant, but they did find that ventilation time and length of ICU stay were longer with the alpha stat group. Um, they also found that there were higher peak levels of cardiac troponin T in cyanotic children than acyanotic children. So, importantly, chronically hypoxemic human myocardium um, for a cyanotic child is more sensitive to ischemia and is going re- to require more sophisticated protection during complex surgery. So, basically, this pH that strategy that's providing perhaps better protection for the heart is gonna be extra extra important in our cyanotic patients with chronic um, hypoxemic myocardium. Conclusion, they found that pH stat blood gas management can provide better protection against ischemic myocardial damage, especially in patients with a pediatric heart that's overloaded or hypoxic, and where complex surgery requires circulatory arrest, or longer ischemic times. And their discussion as to why this this phenomenon occurred, why pH stat provided better protection, is so that the vasodilation from the higher PCO2 levels improved the myocardial cooling, and also improved oxygen delivery due to the rightward shift of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, and also that the hypercapnia decreases lactate production by inhibiting pyruvate dehydrogenous. So if we think back to our both of our articles and we think about the protective effect of pH stat, we really got to think about two main things. One thing is going to be the vasodilation, which is going to promote even cooling, whether it's in the brain or in the heart. And the other thing is going to be that rightward shift of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, which is going to allow more, unlo- more oxygen unloading at the tissues because the hemoglobin is going to be letting go of the oxygen more easily when it's shifted to the right on that curve. So my, my last thing that I have here before we kind of go to discussion is, I, this is this is what I do for my students. I like to come up with little scenarios and kind of talk through them because what I want people to come away with isn't, you know, okay, pH stat is the best for every patient or even every pediatric patient. But we want to think about our specific patient, whether they're an adult or a pediatric patient, what's going to benefit them. So I come up with these little scenarios. The first scenario is a three-month-old patient, five kilos, that's got cardiomyopathy and has been on a PDMAG and has had a previous embolic stroke. Now they're getting their heart transplant in the OR, and they're going to be cooling at 28 degrees. Would we choose alpha stat or pH stat? And I don't know. Can we? Can we open up to discussion at this time?
1: Of course. Yeah. Of course. All right.
3: So does any of you have any thoughts about what blood gas management they would choose for this baby for their heart
1: transplant? Okay. Um, before before I guess at this, um, I'm gonna say that we, you know, there's clearly a difference between pediatric perfusionists and adult perfusionists yes the pediatric ones are the smart ones <laughs> so okay that was really excellently yep. done that was that was, yep, a, that was... really incredible and uh, i mean matt you hit a uh, grand slam home run uh cajoling and convincing katie to come here and uh and do this we hope that to katie this isn't going to be your last because that was highly that was truly impressive and I, and, and uh I say that with, with, with all sincerity. You're welcome. Um, so what would I do in this case? Uh, you know, I don't do pediatrics, um, and this is why I don't do them. Um, I would probably say I would do um, alphastat on this patient only because, well, there's two concerns. One, they've got the previous embolic stroke. So we have a perfusion deficit to the brain. But if it's embolic, that's already been that's already occurred. And we're not cooling that low, 28 degrees. Um, so I would probably choose alpha stat. Okay. So that's wrong. So pH stat, I'll change. No, I would choose alpha stat. Okay, Tammy, you go.
2: For the exact same reasons, again... I don't practice pediatric perfusion and this was a great review for me as well but um i guess i the clues i would uh, focus on would be the uh the embolic stroke and then we're not going into deep hypothermia so i am guessing that it would be alphastat but i don't know
1: truly okay katie help us out
2: matt right, what do you? So- wait,
1: wait a minute what does matt pick you're just sitting there <laughs> hey uh, Katie. <laughs> Katie's forgotten more uh, than I've ever known, so I mean,
0: <laughs> that's why we have people like her across the hallway. Um, I, I, I'm gonna, and I, I don't know what the answer is, but I just, the embolic, the embolic stroke, I, I I'm un I'm unclear whether it's uh, because it is embolic in nature. I think I'm gonna want to um, go more pH only for. Uh, vasodilation that's
3: that's the only thing i can think of all right so
1: and i don't have the answers katie doesn't have I don't the answers right there's
3: nothing in answers, front of right. it i don't know
1: no i I, um, I believe you katie go ahead tell us what so we should one, do
3: i really set it up as a trick for my students right i thought that they would choose ph stats a pediatric case we're going to 28 degrees and really i think that a that that's not the wrong answer and that a lot of pediatric institutes are gonna go with PHDAD on all of their babies no matter what. But recently we've been thinking a lot more, especially here at Vanderbilt, about our patients that have had a stroke that we're concerned that that stroke could turn into a hemorrhagic stroke on bypass. Mm -hmm. So does it benefit us to have extra cerebral blood flow on this patient? Not really sure. Not, but not a lot of data specifically on a previous stroke patient using pH or alpha stat, but we actually have alpha stat because we're concerned about that hemorrhagic stroke on bypass. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. See,
1: see, Joe, Just like sure. the hey, hey, I'm not too far off of the student, Joe. <laughs> I understand, I understand, <laughs> very good. Well, uh, Katie, we do have some questions. Do you have any other questions? Any other uh, uh, good examples or anything? or are, are are your slides done? I don't want to.
3: No, there was a couple other scenarios, but I'm happy well, to let's, go to
1: No, let's do them. Oh, let's I like do the them. Scenarios. I like the scenarios. Yeah.
3: All right. So the next scenario is a 12-year-old, 55-cell disease. They've got a right atrial myxoma. They're going to 34 degrees. Is alpha stat or pH stat?
1: Okay. Um, in this particular case, uh, with the sickle cell, we don't want to have the PO2 way up there. Um, but I would probably do, I would do alpha stat and make sure that I, uh, um, blended my oxygen so that I didn't have a PO2 of 500. I would do alpha stat.
2: Well, and I think at that temperature, it's not going to matter. There's not going to be much difference. hmm so I think it either would be fine. Matt?
0: Well, I thought we were wanting to shift the curve a little bit to let oxygen come off of our, uh, although that, that's only in normal oxygen, correct? So it's in normal hemoglobin, so sickle stuff. I, I still think I'm going to use pH stat because I want to shift it to the right. I want to let have the oxygen come off more freely, isn't that correct? Oh, that's in, in that's
3: the shift. That's the shift, yeah. Okay. If
0: I'm tough, that's what I'm thinking, so.
3: So really, I think you could make an argument for either in this patient because, like Matt just said, we're concerned about oxygen delivery in our sickle cell patients. So if we do pH stat, that might help our oxygen delivery. However, we might also be a little bit concerned about um, not having an acidotic pH at all for our sickle cell patient causing a sickle crisis. So you could argue that alpha stat would help prevent that lower pH. Um, but really what Tammy said is probably the truth at thirty-four degrees, it's not going to make a big difference either way. We would probably do alpha stat here. Again, I think you could make an argument either way on this
1: one. Well, Over for no. two, Joe. I had mentioned I had mentioned um, exactly. I had mentioned um, the PO two. Now is that is that anything you do worry about?
3: So actually, I would say for a sickle cell patient, I would let the PO2 be higher um, just to ensure that oxygen delivery and try to prevent a sickle cell crisis.
1: Okay, so high that's right, higher is best, say I got that backwards, all right, so you don't want it to be low, that requires, that would cause, so, so actually I was totally incorrect. You want that 100%, right, that's why I wouldn't yes. be doing this, I'd be calling somebody before I did this case. Thank you for correcting that, though. So that's a very good point. So I got that one wrong. Okay.
3: And the last one that I had on here, oh, I had a couple on here. Um, so now we've got a three-month-old tetralogy of Fallot with pulmonary atresia, patient weighing three point three kilos. They're presenting for unifocalization. Their QP to QS ratio is three point five to one, and we're going to thirty-two degrees. Should we use AlphaStat or pH Stat?
1: Oh, okay. I know the answer to this one. Go. Okay, so because uh, because it's a tetralogy with pulmonary atresia, I would say that you want, even at 32 degrees, though it's not going to be as significant if you were doing much cooler, I would go pH stat on this.
2: I'll support that.
1: I got a nod. Oh, good. hmm I like it. That's why you're supporting, but that could have been a trick, because she's tricky. She's tricky. She's
3: tricky. She is. Um, yes. I know with the H stat on this one because we're doing a unifocalization. We see that that QPQS is 3.5 to 1, so we're probably going to have a lot of collateral blood flow mm-hmm. that we want to try to minimize as much as possible by increasing that CO2 and hopefully restricting those pulmonary, those
1: pulmonary circulation. Right. Okay.
3: And I think the last one on here had to put an adult on here for all the the non-pediatric people. Um, we've got a 55-year-old male, 73 kilos, for an AVR, MVR, cabbage times two, going to 28 degrees. Would you use alpha stat or pH Stat?
1: Uh, for I would use I, I I would I I don't I think you could do either, um, but uh, I. would probably just do alpha stat which is what we normally do mm-hmm. so I wouldn't change anything that I do based on that type of a case. I would
2: not Yeah same for me. I would still do alpha stat.
1: Matt um, I, I, I do
0: these, I do those cases a lot these exact ones. I, I don't I use alpha stat but I do let my PCO2 drift up to about 50 in yeah.
1: mm-hmm. those cases.
0: Why? Uh, that that, but it it just promotes uh you know more of a vasodilation effect mm-hmm. um for protection, but also uh, even in the beginning because we don't we don't necessarily cross clamp right away uh, we're teaching hospital so we you know we're on pump a little bit longer and uh, before the cross clamp so I will let that PCO two drift up try to dilate out the coronaries as well for or for the hmm mm-hmm. We'd use alpha, um, but kind of a hybrid uh, approach. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
3: So I think you guys are correct. I think at most adult institutions, they would just use alpha stat, perhaps allow a little bit of permissive hypercapnia, like Matt's talking about. Um, Now, if this patient, for some reason, was a congenital patient and they were coming to the children's hospital, we would probably use pH stat because that's what we routinely do on our cooling patients if this patient had you know a calcified aorta or they were concerned about emboli i would certainly not use ph stat Um, so i think alpha stat is probably fine but the patient could benefit from a little bit extra co2 also Mm
4: -hmm.
1: okay very good excellent
0: she was taking notes Katie, I'm gonna be honest. I mean, we, we've had Dr. Hoffman on here.
1: and I have never seen him take notes after
0: a talk. So I mean, it's it,
1: it, you've impressed him.
3: Good.
1: Um, yes, this yeah. these are this was <clears throat> Katie. This was this was one of the most excellent talks that we've had uh, on any of our programs for a very for uh, with a guest speaker or guest faculty um, that I can recall. And so, uh, and we've had some pretty pretty incredible people. Uh, come and do it both on the law online and here in the studio. And uh, my compliments to uh, to to not only your knowledge, but what appears to me as obvious your passion for what it is that you do. And uh, we appreciate your willingness to share this so very much. We do have some questions, and I kind of want to. If that's okay, is this a good time? Yeah. Is it a good time for you, Mm too? So we have some questions, and it has to do with the first one, which I thought was a very interesting one, and one that I've actually had a lot of curiosity about myself, is is it the CO2 that does the cerebrovascular dilatation and and cerebral blood flow, or is it hydrogen ion? So is it the pH that's Mm -hmm. ultimately changing that cerebral blood flow or is it the co2 level itself
3: you know that's a great question and I, I I believe that it's the co2 but I I'm gonna admit that I don't fully know the physiology on that one so I would have to do more research on yeah that. I, and
1: I've actually this is a question that I've had myself and I' I've, I've, I've honestly never been able to answer it myself and I've tried to find out. Mm. Um, because obviously, you know, when we have, and the reason why it comes up is we have patients on long-term ECMO adults and we allow them to have a, you know, we have permissive hypercapnia, PCO2s up in the, sometimes in the Mm sixties, as long as we can keep their pH above 7.3. Well, over time, we find those patients to become very metabolically alkalotic. They essentially have a normal pH with this very elevated PCO2, and so I wonder whether or not that benefit of the increased cerebral blood flow goes away Mm -hmm. as as you compensate over time. And uh, whether you know, so I'm I'm just really not sure. Is it pH or PCO2 driven? Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know the I don't know the answer either. Yes.
3: My 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 guess would be it's PCO2 driven, but I don't I can't say that for sure.
1: Mm-hmm. In which case, you know, and and I guess it's the next the next question for me. Translating all of this from the pediatric space to the adult space, do we have? Lux, such luxurious cerebral blood flow in patients who are persistently hypercapnic because mm-hmm. of that and is that cause cerebral edema that could be problematic to us over this long term and i and i think that uh, that's a that's a real question that uh, i think would be beneficial for us to to eventually reveal
3: hmm
0: mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, I think that's a good a good point because I think sometimes we think, you know, increased cerebral blood flow automatically is a good thing. But just like we talked about the embolic stroke patient and you're talking about these long-term ECMO
2: patients, it might not be really a good thing in the long term. Mm-hmm. Well, and especially it, depending on uh, what you're doing for anticoagulation, you know, we're mm-hmm. always worried about getting head bleeds on these patients and we even seem to be getting some, with patients that we don't have on anti, uh, any anticoagulation, but they are running with higher CO2s. Um, and I wonder just the relationship between mm-hmm. all of that.
1: Well, she brought up a very good point, and uh, Katie did, and that's that we have, another, we have a patient right now who uh, we were doing very minimal anticoagulation strategy on on her very young woman, 30 years old, um, was 21 weeks pregnant, um, aborted the fetus. She
2: was VV ECMO for COVID,
1: mm-hmm, yeah. right? Um, and they couldn't take the child because it was un, it was the age was not viable, and they, they chose not to. But uh, the, the 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 baby didn't survive, and the mother has now had multifocal hemorrhagic strokes. Um, and it makes me wonder, and you you actually cued in on it, whether or not these were actually first embolic in nature and then became hemorrhagic right. or if it's hemorrhagic from the start. Because we keep hearing COVID causes this hypercoagulability, but yet these patient, this particular patient is having a hemorrhagic stroke, which is not necessarily matching up well, hemorrhagic, right. abolic but it could have been one and then evolved into another.
2: And we've seen that on multiple patients as far as having, they're supposed to be um, hypercoagulable but yet we're having these head bleeds even though we have decreased our um, PTT range that we're using or in some cases not had any anticoagulation at all for weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, having no issues with our circuit, however, we're still getting head bleeds.
1: Yes, or oropharyngeal uh, and nasopharyngeal, massive hemorrhage. Um, so we're seeing this hemorrhaging, scanulation site, whatever it may be, but yet we're not you know, we're we're using no anticoagulation. They're not grossly thrombocytopenic. They're
2: all COVID. They're
1: all oh, they're all COVID. So it's I keep hearing about all of this increased coagulation, but yet we're seeing hemorrhagic, mm-hmm. and it's sort of I, we, we're really having a hard time figuring it out. Mm-hmm. I wonder, Joe. You know, uh, you know specifically
0: with, with these pregnant patients, we've had we've had three or four over here that have been on ECMO. We're we're seeing after delivery, specifically to the uh, to the postpartum. There's so much there's so much um, so much uh, hormonal interaction that's going on at that time that mm-hmm. you get that. I think more importantly across the board, I I, I wonder how much this coagulopathy at a microscopic level level mm-hmm. is causing you know so, a small bursts of DIC mm-hmm. and yeah. I just, you know, coagulopathy, you know, also borders with hypercoagulopathy, right? I mean, right. you get this one and the other. Mm-hmm. And I, I just wonder if we are seeing these microembolic, um, you know, clot formations or microembolic strokes. And then, you know, body the body recognizes it and then wants to, you know, compensate. And then you get these head bleeds. I, I think there's That's no a question theory. about it. That there's, is. It's fine. Um, on both sides of, of
1: being hypercoagulable, and then, you know, uh, hypo, you know, kind of a, a bleed out issue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's very interesting. Uh, okay. So this is actually, so uh, let me do another person's question. Cause I have one of my own. Um, you talked about two, three DPG and blood and uh, uh, in the uh, depletion in the banked blood so we can have in the adult space the same problem um what's that noise is that anything oh that poor connection on their end okay hold on i don't know if they can hear me or not there you go are you guys back i think i've lost we've lost them yeah they're frozen yeah let's bring them back we
2: have to wait for that connection okay okay well we can talk a a little bit so Mm -hmm. you know this uh, question that is I'm there
1: something we can maybe text him and ask him to reset his internet setting because he's they're just frozen yeah. And it doesn't make sense to sit here and wait. It makes more sense to do something Okay, so um, while they're reconnecting let them reconnect, but the 2, 3 dpg and blood storage um, That's a problem in both spaces mm-hmm. and what is their strategy for uh, overcoming that, yes. Yeah. Uh, yes, for dealing yeah. with
2: that. Yeah. Well, something else, too, that I wondered um, that I wanted to ask Katie and um, was you know, with the importance of the cerebral blood flow, uh, especially in these pediatric patients, uh, you know, with hyperperfusion and all of these things, I wondered um, if cerebral oximetry is a tool that they use to give Ooh, them additional that's a good information. Question. Well,
1: you need to ask that question. Yeah. Don't forget.
2: Yeah. I didn't have any paper for some Cerebral. reason today. Oh. Yeah, it's okay. I'll get some next, but just write that down because that was something that Cerebral kept crossing my mind. ox. I don't know if they use that in the pediatric realm.
1: I can't imagine that they don't.
2: Yeah, but then um, in, what do they do to manage those sorts mm-hmm, of things, you know? Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Well, you know, just like that patient that you had yesterday, you know, if we needed to use, um, if we didn't, and I can't believe you did that case. That lady was so small. And did that case without transfusion, which I thought was absolutely remarkable. Um, but had she needed a transfusion, she was so small, so tiny, um, you know, that uh, giving her bank blood depleted of 2,3-DPG can actually create an oxygen sink. Mm-hmm. in her where she isn't going to be able to release that oxygen to the tissue she's got this increased capacity right she can carry more
2: but she can't right. give, she can't let go of it so yeah. should
1: we in cardiac surgery be demanding that we use um fresher blood well, that the 45 days is just too long
2: i think that we've had this discussion before um and I, this is actually something i would really like to um get a poll or get people to, to comment on what their hospital's um, policy is on that. You know, what, mm-hmm. do, Does anyone have any sort of protocol set up when they're in their hospital where the, the cardiac cases, whether they be pediatric or adult, are, are able to go to the front of the line for oh. the newer blood? Right. We've talked about this a, a number of times. Yes. I think we might have someone on the, yeah, you,
1: right. on the phone. Right. Oh.
2: Oh okay. We've got Matt and Katie on the phone. Okay.
1: Hey hey Matt and Katie, you're back?
4: Yes, we're on.
2: We're oh, on. Oh good.
1: Okay. So we were talking about 2-3 DPG and uh blood storage time and uh, we were wondering what is your strategy for overcoming the uh the uh, depletion of that in your bank blood.
4: So I think there's you know, a couple things you can do, right? You can try to use newer blood, which, you know, you may or may not have a lot of control over the age of the blood that you're getting. Um, but really, if you think about that that's going to shift your curve
1: to the left,
4: then doing something like pH stat can help overcome that shift and bring you kind of back to where yeah, you were or back a little bit to the right. So it's just something to think about if you're giving your patient a lot of blood, which again, you know, you might, be doing for an, you might have an adult patient you're giving a lot of blood. You might not mm-hmm. normally think about that. But, um, yeah, that's a great point. If you're having trouble, you know, oxygenating your patient, if your ears are going down, or, you know, and you've given a bunch of blood, it might, might be helpful for you, at least for the short term,
1: mm-hmm. to mm-hmm.
4: allow to surprise them.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you actually just touched on a question that uh, Tammy had. Why don't you ask your own question?
2: Katie, I was wondering, in the pediatric realm, uh, is cerebral oximetry a tool that you use to help you um, really monitor the, the kind of uh, flow, uh, blood flow, that you're getting to your um, your patients? I know it's become common yeah. practice in adults, uh, but I just wondered if that's uh, another tool. And then if you do use it, how do you interpret those numbers and uh, as far as changing what you're doing in the moment?
4: So cerebral oximetry is definitely a tool that we utilize and of course we have to use it as what it is, which is a trending device, mm-hmm. right? Not an absolute number device, just like our CDI. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, there's gonna be, it's not a perfect device. It's supposed you know, the, the sensors are supposed to be put on before the patient's asleep, mm-hmm. before they're on, you know, increased FIO2, which usually doesn't happen. So those baseline numbers, basically you just have to see it as what it is. It's a trending device. If you go on bypass and you're near tank, then you got to think about what things are playing into your cerebral um, blood flow. So I think about my crit. I think about my pump flow. I think about my CO2. Often – you know, if you, you'll see a real change if you increase your CO2. Mm-hmm. Usually you can see those cerebral numbers go up. Um, you also got to think about, is the sensor pad firmly pushed down on the patient's head? That's the thing I ask the anesthesia, anesthesia team all the time. If my ears are going down, can you push down on the pad mm-hmm. and see if it's really stuck down or not? So just like any other tool, you really have to evaluate, you know, do I think this is giving me real information? And if it is, you know, what are the things that I can do to help? And if I may uh, ask an
2: additional question, do you, um, obviously you're going to get your baseline numbers, you're going to get your numbers uh, right after you go on pump. What other key points uh, are you um, looking at that? Are you doing, uh, every time you make a charting entry, are you charting those numbers?
4: So actually, we actually use uh, electronic charting here. So those Mm -hmm. numbers are coming across automatically, but yes, I would be. If I was doing a paper chart, I would be charting them every time. And I look at them when we go on bypass. I look at them after cannulation, right? So it could be a clue for me if my arterial cannula is too close to a head vessel, if all of a sudden, um, you know, one cerebral number, if I I have a left and a right, if there's a discrepancy there, Mm -hmm. um, I can think about it after venous cannulation. If I think that my SVC cannula is not draining and I've got you know, some cerebral edema going on. I might see that reflected in my mirrors. And so I really use those all throughout my case. I want to make sure that they're acting the way that I expect them to act. If I'm cooling my patient down, I'm expecting those numbers to go up mm-hmm. because I've decreased the, you know, metabolic demand. And if they're not going up, I want to think, you know, what's going on? Why am I not seeing, you know, why am I having trouble with these nears even though I've got a cold patient? Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Yeah,
2: that is very interesting.
1: So my what question.
2: Wa- oh, Matt, do you want no. to follow up with that? Sorry,
1: Matt.
0: What about what about washing? I know uh, you know bank was well, it's old. It's not going to do anything about the two three DPG, but just washing it, um, you know, with a, a, a more um, alpha alkal- uh, you know, solution, whether it be. You had a normal saline with a 5-carb uh, buffer in it or, you know, a plasma light with a 5 buffer in it. Um, what, what's your thoughts on that, Katie?
4: So that's an interesting question. There's, you know, kind of a debate, I would say, in the pediatric community. Should you wash the blood in the Cell Saver or just mm-hmm. give it on bypass? Um, and I think that neither is wrong. Um, my preference is usually to just give the blood on bypass and give it slowly and kind of correct as I go. If I start seeing, you know, a big, um, base deficit, I'll give a little bit of bicarb. I like to do things, make slow changes and kind of see the effect on the change. So for me, if I'm not dumping in a whole unit, if I'm just kind of, uh, I'll give, you know, 25 ml of blood at a time and kind of slowly, um, correct as I go. Mm -hmm. If you've got an older unit of if you're washing in your cell saver that you might be causing more hemolysis. Mm-hmm.
2: So it's kind of Right. Good point. the, yeah. the, the pro- cells are more pro- fragile, right? That's actually a question that I was talking about. Joe and I have had this discussion about um, older banked blood and um, really thinking that uh, cardiac pro- programs uh, and uh, ORs, when they're needing these uh, units for the patients. Should really be kind of put to the front of the line as far as getting the freshest blood available. And I wondered if um, your institution or you've heard of any other institutions, maybe back at Boston, that uh, any hospital or program has actually developed any sort of protocol like that.
4: So I think, and I can't really speak for the adult hospital, but um, a lot of most pediatric programs, if you've got a patient now they'll pick a different cutoff, but usually a, a newborn patient still requires the blood to be less than seven days old. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, and we usually see pretty fresh blood on most of our pediatric patients. I'm not sure what you guys see at the hospital. We're usually
0: seeing wh- blood three uh, weeks uh, only because I don't think it's a protocol here. It's just, I think we go through so much of it that yeah. it's just the, the natural throughput. Now, outlying hospitals I'm not sure exactly uh,
1: what, what shelf life they're getting, but here it's usually under 21 days mm-hmm. okay. on the adult side. I would be excited if I saw a unit of blood that was only 21 days old.
2: Yeah, we're definitely seeing, uh, you know, sometimes we're lucky enough to get blood that is, um, you know, less than 10 days old or something, but we at the community hospitals for the most part, aren't seeing that kind of um, thing with any regularity, we often have ones approaching the end of their mm-hmm. shelf life, mm-hmm. for sure.
1: I'm curious, do you, do, uh, does Katie, do you or Matt know, is there any type of uh, maybe uh, experimental research or something that maybe even exists, but experimental or whatever, um, that can restore banked blood to a, a, to, a, uh, to a, let's say, a healthier state? that increases its 2,3-DPG or increases its deformability or does something to make it uh, a better product? Like
4: revitalize it or
2: something. Yeah, like a
1: revitalization or anything. Do you know of anything like that?
4: I've never heard of anything like that. I think that your best bet, if that's the blood that you're getting, is probably to, you know, as best you can, try to give it not all at once and try to kind of, you know, Wash it and, you know, if you've got a hemoconcentrator in line, which for pediatrics we do, but I know not all adult places do routinely. But if you've got a hemoconcentrator, you know, try to do some, some Z thing and just correct it as you go. I think that's probably the best you can do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: That makes sense. That
4: does make sense.
2: And
1: then are you seeing in your institution, the pediatric space, the pediatric hospital, um, an uptick in your what would be termed, I guess, adult congenital? patients who previous, who are actually not pediatric patients anymore, but had congenital uh, corrections and now are adults needing revisions or other procedures to be done?
4: Yeah, so I think that as time goes on and as pediatric surgery advances, that is going to be a bigger population. It's going to be those adult congenital patients. Um, Typically, it, it's going to vary from hospital to hospital. Some pediatric surgeons want to do all of their own, you know, redos. Mm. Or um, so we do get adult congenital patients at at Vanderbilt, at the Children's Hospital. I, my understanding is that if it's an adult patient that the congenital defect, some of the considerations are, you know, is it an acquired? You know, are they having a coronary now, or are they having mm. something strictly to do with their congenital defect? They may be done at the adult or the children's hospital, kind of depending. Do they have a lot of other adult comorbidities that the adult ICU is going to be able to manage better? Or do they have some genetic syndrome that the children's hospital ICU is gonna manage better? Those are kind of some things that, that affect that decision. I um, mean and also some of our, our pediatric surgeon does also sometimes go to the adult hospital and do some adult congenital surgeries right. there. And as far as yeah. uh, your, sorry,
2: Matt, uh, real quick, just to follow up on that with that, that's the exact question I was going to ask is, do you have your pediatric surgeons come over, uh, you know, since you're lucky enough to be in a, a huge medical facility uh, like Vanderbilt, come over and take care of those patients, but over on the adult side so that then they're able to uh, go to the appropriate um, ICUs uh, to be able to handle, you know, the, the different comorbidities that adults tend to have? And if so, are your perfusionists uh, uh, more likely to also follow that surgeon or your team of perfusion, uh, like Matt's team, uh, equipped to handle that sort of thing and that you all sort of have a shared program in that um, instance? Good question.
4: Yeah, so, so the surgeons will go across to the adult hospital, just like you mentioned. Um, the perfusionists do not. So Matt and his team work with our pediatric surgeons mm-hmm. when they come over to the adult
0: hospital.
1: -hmm. Well, my question, you've got. mm. Go ahead, Matt. Forgive me,
0: Kate. Kate hit it right on the uh, on the head. I think it really has to do with the post-op care um, of what what, you know. We do have adult age patients. They were at the pediatric hospital based on uh, the post-op care. Whether, like she said, syndromes, Um, but we are seeing a lot more and more. And Katie's very generous to say that we're equipped over here to, to work with the pediatric surgeons. But uh, when they do come over and we do do their cases, what we are seeing a lot more is uh, you know the adult uh, Fontans. Um, we, we are getting quite uh, quite a bit of the heart liver bypass, or heart liver transplant candidates. Mm-hmm. I think we've done five this year already. And we, we did it. All- they're all Fontans, it's all adult, adult Fontan physiology that are getting uh, you know, heart and livers at the same time.
1: Wow. Interesting, very interesting. It is very interesting.
0: If, if one pediatric, we have a pediatric, so you can imagine in that surgery, uh, we've done three in the last month, um, and we're actually starting to get more referrals for them across the country. Mm-hmm. But we, we, we have uh, you know, two attending liver surgeons, one pediatric heart surgeon, and one uh, adult heart surgeon uh, in in those cases, and we're we're actually t- fine tuning that. Um, I know this is getting a little off topic, but we we do uh, we do have you know the, the length of the pump run, and then we end up going on uh, left or uh, more or less right. liver bypass to support during the liver transplant as well. So those are starting to be more popular um, at this institution at least.
2: Well, and Matt, if I can ask just a, a simple question about that. How long would that sort of procedure take? you so, I mean, you've got your two bypasses. Are you having two different perfusionists, or you're just finishing up with the traditional bypass, and then you've already got your, your left heart set up, and you just are switching gears and hopping over to that one? Um, how do you manage those sorts of complicated cases like that?
0: So we're usually, those are usually between 12- and 16-hour cases. Um,
2: but
0: yeah. we canulate. Uh, we generally cannulate uh, from a venous standpoint, and then we'll put a, um, another drainage cannula in the SBC and essentially cannulate with uh, you know, with the aortic. And so when we go on, we do the, the, the heart portion first, and then following what we'll do is the, the surgeon uh, does a, a, you know, The surgeon's kind of cardiac surgeon will take over, and then he'll configure our same circuit uh, or same cannula's different circuit but we'll use the you know the, the cannula that's already in mm-hmm. um, the groin drainage and then we'll reuse through our S D C cannula mm-hmm. uh, to give volume back. So okay. uh, essentially we're in the same cannulas we did for bypass, we're just rewriting the circuit. And, and just by the,
1: and just bypassing the for, liver. Yeah. To get yeah. the blood up from the inferior to the to the superior. Yeah.
0: That's correct. And we're getting better at it. I mean, we've done five this year, and every every case we do, we debrief. We add something more to the mm-hmm. to the recipe. So we're we're actually, I feel like we're making big strides in that particular area. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's the point: the people just do come over here quite often. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So I have um, two questions left. The first one is to Katie only, and it may not be as serious. The second one is uh, to both Katie and Matt. So my question, uh, Katie, to you is when your pediatric surgeons go over to the adult hospital and work with Matt and his team on cases, do they come back whining?
4: <laughs> they do sometimes, although I don't necessarily think it's Matt and his I think it's you know, it's the whole atmosphere there. They're comfort creature surgeons, right? They like being at the, the children's OR where everybody knows what their specific, you know Preferences are and kind of caters to them So of course when they go over there they have to probably communicate more with the team about what they want mm-hmm. But I'm sure that Matt take good care of them
1: I, I'm, I'm sure he does and uh, so good on that now the on a more serious note um, and this is my question we're finally getting to is about Del Nito. Um,
2: I knew you were going there
1: you knew it yeah I knew it So um, Katie and this is both the Katie and Matt um, are you using Del Nito exclusively Katie in the pediatric space and Matt are you using it in the adult space and if you are is it exclusive? And then, Katie, my question is, what do the pediatric guys, um, your your team and uh, your 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 team surgeons and everything, think about the adults using uh, uh, Del Nido? So let's start with, I guess, the are you using it exclusively? And then is Matt using it? And then maybe what that opinion may be from the pediatric space about us using it in the adult space?
4: So... So to answer your question, first I have to disclaimer that I worked with Dr. Del Nido in Boston. Oh, wow. um, so yes, yes, I we do use Del Nido exclusively at the Children's Hospital. I've used it exclusively in Boston Children's Hospital also on both you know, our pediatric and our adult congenital patients. Um, I think it's a great solution. Um, I have no problems with it, and I think that I haven't heard of any issues when it's being used on adults, if it's being used as it's intended to be used. So I think that sometimes in both the adult and the pediatric world, people are using Del Nito and they're using it in a different ratio than the, four to, the one to four. They're using it and they're redosing more often. And then they're seeing a sluggish heart and you know, really it's probably because it, it didn't need to be redosed. Um, so I, I think it's great. For, it, for everyone to use it, and I hope that people use it, like I said, kind of in the way that it's prescribed and that it was intended to be used.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that's a very, very good point. Matt, what about you? What, what is your view?
0: Yeah, we're, we're using it more and more. Uh, I would say um, on any um, straightforward mitral valve, aortic valve, uh, physiology, uh, we've even used it, uh, on cabbages, believe it or not, they're um, they're doing they're, we're, we're doing that more and more. Uh, but to Katie's point, I think it's exactly right. You know, we have some surgeons that are a little bit faster than others, and, uh, just like anywhere. And so if we're going to do a 45-minute aortic valve versus a 70-minute aortic valve from one surgeon to the other, one surgeon will say, let's just give 750 of it because, it's, it, you know, he knows that he's – need needs 45 minutes of protection. I'm unsure if that's how it was actually designed uh, for use. So, as much as we try to uh, not allow that to happen, you know, there, there's a little bit of uh, I want to call uh, uh, professional um, professional uh, stretching of the truth at times on how much we're actually giving mm-hmm. because we. Need to give the four to one or the one to four, four to one, however you're looking at it, and, and it, it was designed to be, you know, as a set recipe. It wasn't. It wasn't designed
1: to be tweaked. And right. So, it wasn't designed to reason, be modified.
0: A read.
1: Well,
2: right. I, I actually have a question lot. about that, and we finally have sort of an expert, right? Katie mm-hmm. worked with him. Katie, so this is really directed to you, but Matt, feel free to jump in if you have um, any thoughts on it. So you mentioned people are redosing when maybe they don't necessarily need to redose, And so I have a specific question about that. So when you're using the Del Nido, if I have it correctly in my mind, uh, you have really a, a, a 60 to 80-minute window of what it's supposed to be effective. Um, and most of the time, our surgeons, where we're using it, make that window. You know, so you don't, you're you not even thinking about redosing, but, you know, occasionally you hit a snag and it's going to run a little bit long. So let's say at, uh, you know, 60 minutes, the surgeon tells you they're going to need another 20 minutes or so, and you haven't really seen any activity. Is that, at that point, are you going to wait until you actually see some kind of activity, or are you going to be protective and go ahead and give, um, another amount of, uh, another round of uh, some Del Nito.
4: So most of the surgeons that I've worked with both here at Vanderbilt and in Boston, at 60 minutes if they really thought they only needed 20 more minutes and there was no activity, they didn't see activity at the field, they would not give more.
2: Okay. And
4: what's your if opinion? Oh, go ahead, I'm like sorry. Yeah, if you, if you give another full dose and turn around and take the clamp off, you know, 15 minutes later, you might see it take a while to come back. Now, Dr. Del Nido actually gave a fabulous talk at AMSEC where he had a lot of data about, you know, really specific safe time. I don't know if that presentation is still available on AMSEC, but but he you know talked a lot about that and 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 I can say from working with him, he rarely redosed and we had fabulous results.
2: Well mm-hmm. and
4: then that leads me to my second part
2: of the question. If you are going to re-dose and you need a smaller amount of time, so you know, you definitely don't need another 60 to 80 minutes, um, what's your experience or do you have any um, specific knowledge about a uh, procedure or protocol for going ahead and, you know, mixing up your, your um, solution um, as you're supposed to, but then only giving a portion of that solution? So maybe, you know, giving a, a half dose. Um, if you just need, you know, 20 to 30 minutes more.
4: Yeah, so our, our our protocol, both again, both in Boston and at Vanderbilt Children's Hospital, is for a maintenance dose to be 10 per kilo versus the 20 per kilo that you gave for the arresting dose. Okay. So we would most likely, for redosing, give that 10 per kilo, unless it's, you know, if the surgeon knows it's going to be hours and hours, then they might ask for another full dose. But if it's for a shorter amount of time, definitely – I do think that you can be, you know, can consider doing the 10 per kilo instead of the 20 per kilo.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and if I may, here's my concern. Um, and, I, you know, I'm a little bit of a naysayer when it comes to the me. use of Del Nido in the adult cardiac patient. Not necessarily uh a valve, but you know they're so fast anyway. You know aortic valves, uh, such an easy operation. Of course, I don't have to actually do it, so it's easy for me. Well, and we've got but
2: some pretty great surgeons. We have so really we're good spoiled. surgeons,
1: and even a, a mitral valve, uh, but we rarely ever clamp for those. So, you know, but with coronary disease, where my issue comes in with this, is if you have significant atherosclerotic heart disease, and you are Um, you have a patient who has ischemia, and that's why they're there, they have a chest pain, whatever the case may be, and you give this delnido cardioplegia as a single dose, then if you don't get really good global uniform distribution of the cardioplegia into the myocardium, then you lose the ability in traditional cardioplegia to do a distal graft and then give cardioplegia down that graft to make sure that you're getting the protection that you need in the entire cardiac uh, uh, muscle. So that's my concern is you give this one dose and sure you may have electrical quiescence, but do you have sufficient protection in those areas of muscle that were uh, that were lacking good perfusion mm-hmm. because of their vascular, the coronary artery disease. That That's my thought anyway. So I'm not a fan of using it on those cases, but I don't know, Matt, you may have different, uh, certainly, you know, better outcomes or we have good outcomes too, but, and I don't think it's worrying about it on every case, but you have to worry about it on, you don't have to worry about it on every case, but you have to worry about it on every case. It's kind of like a two-edged, a, two, a two-sided coin, right? Yeah. Um, you don't know which one of those cases you're not going to get the good distribution. Well,
2: don't you find, too, sorry, real quick before we allow Matt and Katie to contribute to this. Um, the the surgeon, or at least I, I think I've noticed, our surgeons are still often um, ha- using Plegisol to flush through those particular grafts once they... Um, you know, are are sewing the uh, distal portion. Do you have you not seen that? In... Well, I don't do
1: enough. I don't do enough yeah. corners so, to know. Yeah. But, I so, mean, if they are now, you're using two different cardioplegia formulas on the exact same patient. No, I
2: know. And and sometimes I was going to say uh, they. Some surgeons are also using Del Nido in that way, which then it's not really prescribed that way. That's just straight crystalloid. So that was what I was leading to. Is that I think they're thinking about that kind of protection. But I don't know that the way that they the the methods that they're implementing are actually a good idea.
1: Mm-hmm. Right? I don't either. Yeah, Matt, Katie, help us out here.
4: Well, I mean, I'll admit I am not an adult person. I don't do a lot of coronaries, and I think that I don't know how much data there is on on Del Nido in those types of situations. Probably most of it's been done on pediatric patients that don't typically have that issue. Mm. But I mean, I would I would I don't know how much of an additional dose you're giving when you do those, um, you know, through the distal part of the graft. But my first thought would be that you could give some additional Del Nido if you're, you know, are you giving 100 down that graft? Or are you giving 200? You know, just, I guess the most comparable in the pediatric world would be a patient with AI, where we're gonna give an initial integrate dose and open up and go down the, the osteo. And we'll still do Del Nido down the osteo. Um, so I don't, I don't think that that should preclude you from giving a little bit more Del Nido down the, you know, the graft. Um, but, can but I, I interrupt you, I, you for know, a second, Katie?
2: Um, the, typically, when we're seeing this, we're not uh, actually delivering it with the, the blood mixture. They have um, Del Nido or Plegisol, as it may be, depending on you know, uh, what hospital and what surgeon we're working with they have it just drawn up in a syringe, straight crystalloid. I, and so that's the concern, right? It wasn't really made for that kind of application, although their thinking, yeah. I think, is correct. They're trying to protect those areas that might be isolated and don't have, you know, good perfusion and didn't get the initial arrest. But, you know, is that an appropriate application? I don't know.
4: Yeah, I'm not sure, because I do think that the Del Nido... Formula does rely on there being some level of calcium in the blood mm-hmm. that's not in the delta. So, so I'm not sure if you're giving it as all crystalloid, then then yeah, you're probably correct. That's not really how it's intended. And, and I, I did have,
2: more. I did have one surgeon uh, that I uh, worked with for a period of time that uh, would initially just it, as soon as you went on pump, you ran up. Uh, some uh, cardioplegia uh, in Del Nido mixed up and put into a basin so that when they did draw up things in a syringe to test their graft, yeah. you have the appropriate um, mixture. And I thought that was a really good idea.
1: Yeah, that's not bad. Yeah. but um, Go ahead, Matt. Yeah, that's
0: what, that's what we do here. Um, when, we, when we run up the cardioplegia, they put it to a basin and mm-hmm. then they keep the basin on the back table mm-hmm. in the slush machine. Yes. And then they'll draw it up that's what they'll do. I think, Joe, that's, that's how they get around the concept which, you know, when you think of it, you know, with everything you described, Joe, is exactly pertinent and exactly, you know, concerning uh, when it comes to cabbage work. But they're 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 using it, like I said, as their own recipe, as they're giving the initial dose and then after they, the distal, they're flushing it with the Del Nido that's in the basin. And, and, and I, it, we've had success, we've, you know, we haven't had any problems, it's just you just wonder, you know, you know what, it's a, te- it's a testament to how good the product really is, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because, uh, but, uh, to, you know, I, I don't want to bridge, uh, you know, bridge to another session, but I, I think this, this Del Nito,
4: uh, you know, this could be a, a whole yeah. another talk, uh, you know,
0: in the un- upcoming month, and we've got Katie, that you know, if she'd be willing to come back, I think that's what we should do. I, I,
1: think
0: I, do,
2: need yeah. I have a real interest in it. So, Katie just
1: committed. All right. Thank and, you, Katie. Yeah. I, we can't see you anymore, <laughs> but I appreciate you so very much.
2: Yeah. yeah, this is a great topic. And Joe and I debate about this all the time. So I think that would be a wonderful um, presentation. So thanks a lot for suggesting it, Matt. And thank you, Katie, for committing to it.
1: Thank you. Sure. <laughs> Okay, guys, listen, I I know we've run over, and thank you for your generous time, and and, uh, uh, we appreciate both of you so very much. Uh, Let me let the audience know that this is going to conclude our Vanderbilt University Medical Center Faculty Forum with Matt and Katie, and we will look forward to our next one a month from now. It's always the first uh, Wednesday. Wednesday of every month. And uh, maybe we will just re-change change the subject. Well, I'll reach out to you, Matt, and we can figure it out. Um, I thought today was going to be something about platelets. I know Katie has that as well. Um, so let's let's all talk and see what we can do, and we'll get the right things scheduled uh, for the next program. And thank you all so very much.
2: Yeah, a wonderful topic. Thank you both so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank
1: you. Mm. Take care, Joe. Bye-bye, sir. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye, Katie.